Welcome to Shoot the DVD Player. My name is Tim Stern, and with me is Anna Ryan Punch. Hi there. Hello. As we did last week, we're going to share our thoughts about some of the films which we've seen at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival, which is currently in its final week. And I have the traditional Melbourne Film Festival cold at the Sniffing moment. Sniffing at myth. This is going to be cold. <laughs> so I apologise if I'm coughing and spluttering. You sound manly. It's good. <laughs> As opposed to my usual... Yeah. Non-madly. Yeah. It was excellent. Unusual pitch. Uh, later we'll be looking at two documentaries, the Marlon Brando biography, Listen to Me Marlon, and Raiders, or should I say Raiders? You've got to put the exclamation mark. The unlikely story of a group of child filmmakers who get back together as adults to finish their highly unusual project. But first, Tehran Taxi. In 2010, Iranian director Jafar Panahi was banned from directing films for 20 years having been convicted of supposed crimes against the Islamic State. Since then, Panahi has gone guerrilla. His first post-ban film, 2011's This Is Not A Film, was shot in Panahi's home and smuggled out of Iran on a USB drive hidden inside a cake. Wow. <laughs> a second covert film, Closed Curtain, appeared in 2013. Now Panahi has made Taxi, which is screening it at MIF as Tehran Taxi. The film takes place entirely inside a taxi, driven by Panahi playing himself, as it ferries passengers through the capital's busy streets. The passengers, played by non-professional actors, are a varied bunch, and through their conversations, Panahi offers an insight into the present, the state of present-day Iran. More than that, the act of producing the film is an act of rebellion, and whatever its cinematic qualities, it is impossible not to be moved and impressed by Panahi's bravery. Uh, it's obviously a powerful statement of artistic freedom, but what did you think of it as a film? Well, I really enjoyed learning a lot about how the Tehran taxi system works, <laughs> which is great. They do baby honk and they pick up people and you can buy a whole taxi or just a bit of a taxi. What's a baby honk? When they do the little little toot right. to let people know that they're driving past and would you like a taxi? And if you respond to the baby honk, then you're getting your taxi. Um, I enjoyed this a lot. There's kind of a, in his gentle manner, there's this lovely kind of, winking fuck you to the government with uh, a lot of the subject matter. matter. Um, each character who gets in his taxi, um, half of them recognise him and go, hey, I know what you're doing. You're making another <laughs> film, aren't you? And it's such a fun, absurd array of characters, like old ladies holding open bowls of goldfish and people selling all sorts of pirate stuff and his pushy vocal niece. I, I really like the kind of range of people who get in. Yeah, I think I mean, it's obviously um, meant to reflect, to some extent, a kind of pluralist, you know, idea of the kind of society that Iran is, um, as opposed to uh, the more monolithic society that the, you know, the state the wants to be society. represented. Mm. And, and also, but then um, as a consequence to Western audiences, to show... But hang on, it's not the monolithic state that your governments and your media make Iran out to be. Um, and, you know, and this is true of all particularly Middle Eastern countries, that we have such a um, limited idea of what day-to-day -day life is like um, in an Islamic country or whatever. Um, and so, I mean, obviously, it's not a film that's... Um, it's not a film that's going to be screened in Iran. No. So it's an Iranian film that's directed at Western audiences mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, and yeah, so I think that the range of characters that um, are shown um, 
is meant to reflect, you know, that sort of pluralist view. Yeah, even to have things like a woman getting into the back of a taxi and then having a full-on argument with a man she's never met. You know, it's not an image that would be presented of Iranian women to the rest of the world. No, that's right. And and it's not an image of Iran that gets presented in Western films Mm. either. No. Where it tends to be the sort of, you know, Argo style, you know, it's the Islamic revolution and they're all hardline fundamentalists and so forth. When it's this enormous country i mean tehran itself has something like eight million people in it um you know it's it's a massive city and a massive you know country and there's an awful lot of different people in there Mm. and they're all operating under this very strange sort of um semi-closed society it's very strange you know it's an it's you know it's an interesting society to consider and yeah that's um and just you know being in this cab and driving around the streets is interesting, I guess, for, for us from a Western perspective, just to see what a bit of life is like. On yeah, and perhaps an insight to what they talk about among themselves that we never hear. Yes, that's right. And, and yeah, I suppose to show that these are the conversations that take place amongst everyday Iranians. It's not just everybody is you know, talking about America being the great Satan and, you know, they're just ordinary people and, you know, there are differing opinions and and differing lifestyles and some people are rich and some are poor and some are hardliners and some are more kind of, you know, um, against the regime or whatever, in in whatever ways they can be. Um, It's also a really funny movie. Yes, Uh, it's so much fun to watch. Yeah, especially in the first half of it. There's really absurd sort of characters (laughs) Um, and as you say, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing because it's sort of presented as being as if this is like a kind of, you know, taxi cab confessions sort of fly-on-the-wall <laughs> documentary where he's driving around in this taxi picking up people. But they're quite clearly actors, you know. And then and there's that sort of winking thing where the actors will be like sort of, you know, acknowledging that, oh, <laughs> you're a taxi driver now, are you? This is your new job, is it? <laughs> yeah. I recognise you even with your cap on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Panahi's sort of... His knowing grin that he gives every now. And yes, he has this. He has this lovely kind of um, look at the camera every now and then and smiles. You know, he doesn't really say a great deal himself. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't lead any of the conversations or really participate in them mm. to a great extent. He just is the kind of mirror to this. You know what's going on around him, um, and and yeah, he doesn't really put forward any uh, verbal opinions about any of the subjects that yeah, come up for he's discussion. being the filmmaker. He mainly sits there and directs the camera. Yeah, so in that exactly. sense, he is being the filmmaker and playing the filmmaker. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun, actually, a lot of the time. Um, but it's also a very serious movie. And, you know, um, I like the way that the sort of images uh, of image making run through it, um, not only with the in-camera, the in-car camera that Panahi sort of uses, but you know, his niece gets in and she's got a digital camera and she's meant to be making a film. And then there's a bit where there's something being shot on a um, phone. Uh, phone camera. And then there's footage from a security camera that they they watch and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, it's a lot of stuff about how, I guess, like the tools for image production are so democratised, you know, and everyone... Everyone's making unscreenable films. Yeah, that's right. Like, mm-hmm. uh, they're all shooting all this stuff that that under the regime's rules is 
not allowed to be shown, you know, that you're not allowed to show um, certain aspects of life, and yet there are cameras everywhere showing all sorts of things, and, you know, um, and so I, I sort of took that as a bit of an implicit dig at the regime and its rules and about what can be screened and this kind of the official channels of filmmaking are so narrowly defined and yet the streets are overrun with people with cameras yeah. the various sorts and, of and people things. selling bootleg films from America and yeah. CDs from America you know every second person he winds down the window for is trying to sell him something that's right that's and quite like, openly yeah, uh, yeah. you know they yeah and so obviously I mean you know they're, they're accessing films and stuff that, um, you know, they're not meant to be, but there's quite clearly... <laughs> Without me, where would you get your Woody Allen? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Says. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's also quite, uh, you know, it, in as much as it, it does have that idea of, well, fuck you all, we're going to make films and, and we're going to create images and we're going to, you know, information will spread regardless. Um, it's not in any way... Um, devaluing the or yeah it still continues to underline the fact that this is an oppressive regime and that you know he makes the point like at the very end of the film where you know there are certain rules that where the people that are credited in films have to be you know approved by the the state body therefore this film has no credit sequence you know none of the people in it can be credited yeah but thanks for your help yeah thanks for your help (laughs) um and the ending itself um is a quite striking um, depiction of, of um, yeah, the, the government suppressing material, and, mm. you know, in a sort of meta way suppressing this film. So. Which was obviously quite convincing as it fooled a few people we heard in the audience. Yeah. Have we ever heard people going, but how did he get his footage? And someone <laughs> yeah. else replying, because it's a film, it didn't actually happen. <laughs> yeah, it's not actually a documentary. I it's love hearing just... audience members just cut each other down about these things, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, it's quite a... Um, multi-level sort of film Hmm. um but um it doesn't sort of come across as being particularly preachy because it's so sort of good humored in all of its presentations like it doesn't come across as i don't know a protest film in the kind of tedious way you would imagine one like it's an enjoyable film to watch while making these points yeah it's i mean it's it is a protest film Hmm. in in just in the fact of it being Being made. made it's a protest film and the you know it is fairly explicit in its critique of Iranian government. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a pleasurable film as well, and an unusual film, yeah. uh, a pleasurably unusual film yeah. uh, to he's, watch. He's making a film about... He's not allowed to make a film about why he's not allowed to make a film. So <laughs> yeah. you kind of keep going back into these That's restrictions right. as you go through. It would be interesting to know what, uh, as we have not seen his previous two films no i've only seen offside so uh yeah since he was banned from making them so it'd be interesting to see those or to you know hear what someone who had seen all three thinks of it but um yeah yeah, but uh in any case we'd possibly get to those films at some point Hmm. and report back (laughs) (laughs) uh so that takes us to our second film for today which is listen up listen up listen to me marla i keep doing that too because listen up philip Yes, That's and someone, I saw someone tweet it, tweet it as looking for Marlon, which is <laughs> <laughs> another, it could have, you know, yep. sort of generic titles, yeah. Uh, at the start of this film, a title card informs us that when he died, Marlon Brando left behind an archive of hundreds of hours of audio tapes, a kind of spoken diary of his thoughts and memories. 
Director Stephen Riley has taken these tapes and other recordings of Brando's voice in interviews and public appearances and created a biographical collage of the actor's life. Marlon Brando is one of the great pop culture icons of the 20th century and he lived a tempestuous life in public and in private. As a personality, Brando was complex and contra contradictory, introspective and egotistical, charming and obnoxious, thoughtful and selfish. Given all of this, the story of his life, as narrated by the man himself, should make for compelling viewing. <laughs> but did it? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about teaser sequence. Um, it's pretty impressive to make such an interesting character into such a boring film. And into and it's also pretty impressive to make an hour and a half film feel like you've been in the cinema for about three hours. Yes. Yeah. As you can guess, I was not enthused about this one. Um, it did feel very long, and it's gimmick... I guess, of the tapes that were, you know, you'd think maybe there was something revelatory or that provided a great deal of insight, you know, to make them worthwhile. They didn't really seem to add anything to his story than already available interviewing, yeah. publicly available interviews. I think, you know, it, it's obviously the hook that the film is based on, that this is Brando and his own voice. But I would question whether tapes made for one's private use are truly representative of someone's inner thoughts and and eloquence, Boom. just as a diary, with <laughs> very rare exceptions, mm. people's diaries are not necessarily representative of them because they're written at certain times. You know, they might be overtly overly negative. You know, I know. Could you burn mine? If yeah, you yeah. Die? So. <laughs> like every all the sort of personal writing that I've written, I would not want that to stand as my testament about my life because I don't think it really captures uh, the range of my thoughts or memories. It captures certain states of mind, not always especially um, complimentary ones. Yeah, often it captures things that you've written down because you can't say them to anyone. Yeah, that's right. So that's a very specific slice of your life there. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, the novelty of having these tapes... Uh, means the film goes in certain directions. It has to stick with that concept. Mm. Um, and whereas a more straightforward uh, biography that was using different sources would have been able to, to perhaps take it in a different direction. Mm. Um, the other thing I just want to say about the tapes is that we're, we're never really told when during Brando's life he made these tapes, other than throughout his life he made lots of tapes. You can only pick one bit because he's telling himself off for eating too much pie. Right. So he was fat then, <laughs> yeah. so he wasn't very young was then. Late, late That's Brando. about it. Yeah. yeah, so we have no idea when, you know, what periods through his life he made these tapes. Um, and also, none of the bits of tape that we hear, and there's presumably hundreds of pieces of sound taken from these tapes to create this collage is ever dated or put into any kind of context. It's just cut up and used as a kind of blanket narrative for the film, which, you know, again, removing it from context, like if it'd be like cutting up someone's diary, again, mm. to use that analogy, cutting out sentences from someone's diary to create a, a narrative, removing those from their context. Whereas one, if you went on oh, April the 3rd, 2001, I wrote this, and looked at it in the context of your life, that might have some relevance. Mm. And you could say what you were doing at that time or whatever. If it was just a few sentences plucked from that and then stuck together with some from 2005 and some from 1983, <laughs> and, you know, it just, yeah, that uh, just doesn't work for me at all. Yeah. I'd also question the value of 
you know, they've obviously had hundreds of hours of tape to use and if they're picking out bits where Marlon's self-hypnosis um, telling himself that he will be getting less fat over and over again, yeah. like, there must have been not a great deal of good material if they're yeah. including sort of, I don't know, things like that. Like, is that really the best they could glean from the tapes? And if so, maybe don't use them. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, the footage and audio that they use of interviews and sort of public speeches and things like that was vastly more revealing. Yeah, quite telling. Of him than than these private things, which, as you say, were just kind of fairly banal. And Self-hypnosis, sort of, relaxation. Yeah, not all that interesting. No. And, you know, they were clearly for private use and whatever use they had for him, whatever utility they had, died when he died, yeah. really, you know. Uh what did you think of the visual style of the film, which is very, again, it's a collage sort of style of using a lot of stock footage and file footage and, and kind of abstract images and footage that they've shot for the film, you know, of rooms and sets and things like that. What did you think of how that came yeah. together? Um, it's a very ploddingly chronological film. Like it starts at the start of his life and it goes directly through to the end. Um, but the things they have taken out of context are shown with images that are also taken out of context. Mm. And there's kind of mocked up houses with his f- sort of 3D scanned face narrating his own tapes. And every time we went oh. back to that fucking house, yes. I was like, oh no. The computerized Brando face in the room full of like, archival tapes. And things. <laughs> oh, it's just awful. It was like a bad DVD menu screen. It was, wasn't it? Mm. It was so bad, yeah. Yes, yeah. I was going to mention that that was all very tedious. I don't I don't mind chron- chrono- chronologically filmed things. You know, all right, then it'll be 30. As long as they kind of use the material well and yeah. sift it well. Yeah. And I think, as we were saying after we saw it, that, you know, both of us are... We've seen a lot of Brando's films... I think neither of us are like massive Brando fanatics, but you know we certainly recognise. Really his like to look at him when he's young. Yeah, and he's, he was a great actor, and you know he's a he's an icon. It's beautiful. Um, there was nothing in this film that came as a surprise, as far as his life story or his opinions or personality or anything like that. Um, there was nothing really there that. Yeah, it gave you any extra insight than than even fairly casual Marlon Brando fans such as us already knew Um, and so you wonder what value this film has given that it's meant to be this all new material that's never been heard or seen before to an expert it would just be like I can't imagine that how boring this would be (laughs) (laughs) yeah it wouldn't be telling you anything you hadn't seen or heard before Um, I I do have to mention the music as well I know this is just a completely negative review but that was the first thing that got my hackles raised. It's just an awful, awful use of music in this mm. film. And I like Max Richter, which is a lot of the music they use. There's a lot of great music. There's, There's a lot of good lot music of Max in Max Richter, mm-hmm. Johan, whatever his name is, Johansson or whatever. You know, people like that. Mm. Yeah. But it's here it's used. It's too loud. It's like interstellar all over again. <laughs> it's intrusive and it's irritating. And it makes it really hard to concentrate on what was happening, which was already difficult. Yeah. It's just... and. There's too many swelling violins moments. Like the first one comes maybe 20 minutes into the film, mm. and then there's another one, and then there's another one. And like, oh, it's just it so never stops. irritating. Yeah, it never stops. It's just it never. There's never a moment I don't think where there's not this intrusive music going through the film, and you're just sitting there going, "Would you just like back it off a bit and yeah. let the images and the audio 
speak for themselves rather than having to pummel us with this ridiculously intrusive soundtrack. Ah, it was terrible. I, yeah, I, I agree with you that some of the music, great, but yeah. Um, I mean, it's great independently of this film. But yes. That, yes not but when I saw the credits and went, oh, Max Richter, oh my God, I like this music. Yeah. Why did the film make me hate it? Yeah. I think if there's one moment that kind of sums up this movie's uh, fairly crappy nature, uh, it's the bit where they talk about, like, Brando, you know, famously was associated with Tahiti and he lived, you know, he had a house in Tahiti and whatever, and it was kind of his refuge. Um, and his, when his daughter committed suicide in Tahiti. And as the film is describing this, they use a newsreader saying something like, Tahiti will never be the same for Brando. And it's the most cringy, tasteless, tabloid, you know, ridiculous newsreader voiceover. Of all of the things they could have used to illustrate that moment, mm. that's what they use. And, and I think could... you said it, that they wanted to say that themselves. Like yeah. That was the kind of tabloid mindset that the filmmakers that they wanted to present there yeah. you could almost feel the kind of collective eye roll in the audience at that bit at yeah, least yeah definitely mm. yeah um yes as i as i was saying uh, to you the other day i think a documentary about an actor should make you want to go and watch their movies but not as immediate preference to what to continuing to watch the documentary <laughs> yeah. like shut this thing down you know every time they put on like a clip from one of his films i was just like I wish we were watching this. Yeah, can we put that on instead? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just... Uh, look, when we were watching it, I found some of it interesting. Just, I guess, Brando's sort of magnetism does come through. Uh, and that's absolutely nothing to do with the people that made this film. <laughs> it's and all, all to him. do with him. And, and the people that made the films he was in. Uh, but afterwards, I just got, <laughs> I just got quite angry towards it. It's such a, such a squandered opportunity, you know. I just think... Uh, why, why did they do this? This was one of those films where I'm sitting there watching it going, oh, I hope Tim doesn't really love this because I think it's terrible. <laughs> yes. Well, we're, we're in, in agreement on this. So, so go and watch a film with Marlon Brando in it instead. You'll be much happier. Exactly. Even something terrible like Doctor Island of Dr. Moreau. That candy one where he was playing an upside down guru. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that takes us to our third and thankfully a much better film uh, for this week, which is Raiders. Raiders. Yep. Um, in 1982, three Mississippi 11-year-olds set about producing a shot-by-shot -shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Most 11-year-olds with big plans tend to be sidetracked fairly easily, which is why my magazine publishing empire, Rad Incorporated, <laughs> to give its incredibly cool title, didn't go the distance. And Anna's gang, the goody-goody guy guys, <gasps> goody, didn't goody end guy up guys. controlling the drug trade <laughs> on the city's east side. <laughs> But Eric Zala, Chris Strompolos, and Jason Lamb were steadfast, continuing to work on their film over the following seven summers. Uh, 30 years later, and thanks to the internet and nerds on the internet, the Raiders remake has become a popular talking point among a certain niche of film aficionados. Zala and uh, Strom Strompolos, I think that's how you pronounce his name, decide to reunite to film the one scene they couldn't pull off as teens, the effects-heavy fight scene between Indiana Jones and some Nazi heavies on a Cairo runway. Raiders, the documentary, delves into the history of this strange project and follows Zala and Strompolos as they attempt to complete it all these years later. Uh, what did you think of Raiders? You just can't watch this documentary without being so seriously invested in these children and these children become adults i was just cheering from the sidelines so much my heart was hurting i was like oh god i hope this goes okay it's like watching a spielberg movie um 
and it doesn't it helps that Chris looks like a young Corey Feldman as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I get so invested in the children and so invested in the adults, and then I'm like, just, just step back, it's okay, it's just a film. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I enjoyed this thoroughly, even though it made me cry a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I found it. I mean, it's a bit wobbly as a documentary mm-hmm. um, at some, at times. Um, but that kind of, you know, adds to the charm a little bit. I just bit, totally didn't mind. Yeah, me too. And it's it's so full of joy and, and fun and there's mm. sort of a real sense of melancholy to it as well that I was happy to overlook its flaws and it's a real crowd-pleasing film. Like, people were gasping and laughing and just totally delighted with everything that happened in the film. Um, and the the people in it, they're really interesting characters because they're just kind of regular guys um, who have had interesting lives. Like, they've had their ups and downs and all the rest of it, as everyone does. So they're, they're, they're fairly unremarkable kind of people mm. who, you know, just happen to hit upon this bizarre project. This bizarre summer escapism that yeah. lasted six years. And to stick with it through that time is amazing. Mm. You know, I, as I sort of alluded to in my introduction, like, I can't remember any projects lasting longer than, like, a month or whatever, you know, if that, <laughs> if yeah. that to sort of continue going back to it and, um, you know, to continue making this thing as you got older and, you know, transition to adulthood and have fallings out with your friends and, you know, by the end of it, they weren't even speaking to one another, and, you know, <laughs> yep. but they still stuck with it and finished, finished making this thing. It's, um, you know, their, their sort of dedication and just the skill involved and, ingenuity of putting it together and the life-threatening situations they put themselves in every physical bravery oh my god (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just as well their parents didn't know what they were up to most of the time it is isn't it oh my god yeah some of the things are just kind of oh shit (laughs) (laughs) like when he says i'll admit i uh, asked chris to pour gasoline on me and set me on fire (laughs) and and to when they're um, remaking their final scene their mother one of their mothers says that if they ever remake another film it's got to be one with no fire (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the sort of uh just the skill of them recreating things so that they do look like the original film like Mm. the the way the shots are framed the way the actors move it's amazing like just the the way they did this this film it's it's really i mean it is amazing and um people might be familiar with them because they have appeared on television talking about it um including on andrew denton who appears in this film that was a surprise appearance yeah (laughs) this movie should really be rated uh ad (laughs) surprise (laughs) Surprise andrew Andrew denton Denton. (laughs) (laughs) um i wanted to know whether you thought that okay like let's say the idea of them going to complete this scene uh, and finish the film after all these years is obviously the hook that this documentary is based on, and that's why we're having this story. And mm. you know, but do you think that they should have gone back and finished <laughs> this this one scene that they didn't do as as teenagers? Yeah, I'm I'm on their <laughs> side with this one. Um, I think partly because their project did become you know popular, like people, it was screened at various sort of. Um, indie film festival type things well geek film festival type things mm. and people it sort of gathered this um, like wave of people behind it going yeah. well, you know we should get them together again we've got to find these guys like the guy who um, tracked down every like googled every person in the credits to try and find mm. them you know people were just so captured by their project and caught up with it yeah. but I think if you had made these um, this sort of film as a as a kid as kind of a 
an escapist thing and then suddenly found out the whole world was behind you as an adult. How could you not? How could yeah. you not go and want to make the biggest fucking explosion possible and yeah. have everyone cheer you on? I think, yeah, it makes sense in a narrative way. And I know what you mean. And in I, an emotional way. And I guess, yeah, I just feel like part <laughs> of it makes me a little bit sad because I feel like when they were kids, they kind of just made this thing piecemeal and they devoted all this attention and time to it. And they were so clever in the way that they could do all this stuff with basically no money. The truck just... pushing another truck because yeah. the front truck didn't have an engine. That's right. <laughs> they just used whatever resources they could lay their hands on and created these amazing set pieces um, that really do recreate this multi-million dollar special effects extravaganza. <laughs> and yet when they come to do it as adults, it becomes this full-on 10-day shoot with a proper cinematographer and proper special effects guys and all this sort of stuff. And to me, that just kind of is a little bit sad. I find that a little bit, like, I don't know, like, it just, it doesn't have the charm to it that they do it, that the stuff they did as kids. I don't know. I think it's kind of just an adult extinction of themselves as kids, because as kids, they, they wanted to make it as perfect as they could. You know, they made five different boulders mm. before they got their perfect boulder. You know, they didn't just settle for what they could manage. I mean, they couldn't even want, get one of their boulders out of their bedroom because they built it too big. <laughs> so w- when they want to do something in this, um, in a bigger way, because they can, because they're adults, mm. um, I think that it's sort of ridiculous, but it fits with their personalities. And if they'd wanted to shoot it with miniatures they would have done that when they were teenagers yeah you know they didn't want to settle for that then so it makes sense that they don't want to settle for that as adults i did wonder about that um that they didn't want to settle for minute shooting it with miniatures <laughs> as kids when they were willing to have a dog play a monkey <laughs> <laughs> maybe they just didn't like the guy who made the miniatures yeah, they maybe. didn't seem to like him so much no they didn't actually mm. he was he was not the not really part of the team was he no. um, fully part but yeah no look i think it's just a i, I don't know i'm in two minds about about that and I'm glad that they did because then otherwise we wouldn't have this documentary so you know and having said that it is a lot of fun when they get the shot they get the scene actually filmed and at the end they show the scene Mm. and it is perfect like it's exactly like it is in Indiana Jones in in Raiders of Lost Ark Um, one of the things I really loved about this film is just the way that it it is about creating something for the sake of creating something and that's something that a lot of us are probably really familiar with as kids, you know, you kind of, you know, you might have vague sort of childlike plans of, oh, I'm going to become a filmmaker or I'm going to become a world famous journalist or musician or whatever it is, but it's all just there in the fun of doing it and the kind of play acting it at being a professional, whatever it might be. Yeah. I don't know how many terrible plays I forced my friends to put on with me. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, you can see that these kids, they may have had plans of going into the film business at some point and maybe still do, but that wasn't what drove them to do this. They didn't have to do this seven years in a row, yes. seven summers in a row, do this absurd um, task. It's not something just to put on their resumes when they go to film school. Exactly. And it was all about sort of the challenge, the challenges that confronted them and the sort of joy of creating and the the third guy Jason who we just referred to as being sort of a bit of the black sheep of the trio um as in an interview as an adult he says that you know that Chris and Eric wanted this to be a calling card to get into the industry and I think he just completely misses the point and you can see why they didn't get along with him because that's totally not what Chris and Eric 
wanted to do this project for. You know, they, they wanted to do it because they were doing it. <laughs> like, yeah. it. It was fun and it was challenging and it was a th- just something they set their mind to. And yeah. And that interview part with Jason is actually quite a funny moment in the film because he starts to go on and on and on and they just sort of fade him out and move to another scene at that yeah, point. Because they're like, right. no, we think you've got the wrong end of the stick here, mate. We're just going to move along. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I just... I don't know. I, 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 I'm not saying that people shouldn't try and make a living from creative work and, and, you know, people having careers and stuff is important, but I think, you know, it does, this film just does show that there's something to be said for just doing things. Yeah, and not everything has to be for something. Yeah, there doesn't have to be an end in mind. And, you know, it just made me think um, about being a kid and starting bands and zines and whatever, you know, all sorts of little projects, like way back when I was a kid and right through my teens. And, you know, you'd have kind of half an eye on, oh, maybe one day I could be a rock star or whatever. <laughs> but that kind of wasn't really what it was about. And it was, you know... In some ways, these guys are really lucky because they've got something that's quite charming that they can show people and, you know, that they devote all this time to. Like, I don't know whether I'd be too keen on my band's demos from when I was a teenager having being released into the world. But, you know, I'm not embarrassed for having done them. And, you know, it was great fun. And I, no. and I think this kind of film is just a reminder that, you know, sometimes it's great to just do something. And Yes, and they're, they're, they're doing it for the love of a film that they saw once, basically. Yeah, that's right. This thing was great, so we're going to do this to have fun out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is a, a very fun film, and um, if you get a chance to see it, I, I would recommend it. Yeah, me too. Very much. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so before we go this week, uh, we might just say a few words about a couple of other myth films we've seen. Uh, the first one is Land and Shade, which is a Colombian film, and it's uh, essentially the story of an old man returning to his family's farm, where his adult son is laid up in bed, ill, um, with, what is it, pollution-induced sort of emphysema, Yeah, he's basically got dust pneumonia. Yeah, because they live amongst the uh, sugarcane sort of fields, and they burn the, and the ashes and all the rest of it, yeah. Mm. Um, and just about this family sort of, um, that is fractured and kind of coming together again um and in the midst of fairly uh brutal rural poverty um what did you think of land and shade i didn't quite know what to expect going into this one and i really enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would i think it's a really um good demonstration of how much emotion you can create in a film without people really saying much or being overly demonstrative like it's sort of an exercise in emotional subtlety and it works just so well mm. and it's it's beautiful to look at as well it is yeah it's really beautifully shot and yeah as you say really reserved in its performances and the script is quite minimal uh but yeah it just is so beautifully done they transmit so much just through their actions and mm. Yeah, it's. I, I thought it was a really great film, actually. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those films that kind of reminds you that sort of sadness doesn't have to be depressing. Mm. Like that, there's a big difference there, and you can kind of be moved and think things are very sad without it. Yeah, being a world is fucked scenario. Yes, yeah. and it wasn't uh, manipulative in its characters. They were presented as being uh, quite shaded. You know, like it wasn't like the old bloke comes back and, oh, he used to beat his son and he was a prick and whatever. It's not like that. No one was just slotted into any role. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, quite, uh, yeah, 
Shades of Grey in the characters. Land and Shades of Grey. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I hope it becomes available on DVD because I think it would be a good one. Yes, definitely. Um, And the other one, uh, which I didn't see but you did see, which is the new, I forget his first name, but Koreeda. Yes. uh, The Japanese filmmaker whose film... Our Little Sister? No, no, no. What was the one we covered on the podcast? Oh, I'm Still Walking. Still Walking, which we talked about on the podcast a while ago. And Our Little Sister is his new one, which you saw. Yeah, it's um, adapted from a graphic novel, apparently, but I haven't found out which one yet. Um, It's essentially the story of three sisters who go to their father's funeral and meet their stepsister, who they've never met before, and sort of on a whim invite her to come back and live with them. They kind of go, we've all got jobs, we can look after you. And she goes, all right. (laughs) Um, So it's one of his beautiful, finely observed, um, small family stories. And it's set in one of those wonderful old Japanese sort of country houses with the balconies onto the plum trees and and things like that. And just the three sisters who are all maybe about four or five years apart and this new younger girl who's 15. And they're kind of quietly navigating this new family between them and in that navigating their past relationships with their parents who um, have sort of abandoned one half and Mm. the younger sister had to nurse the father and things like that as well. So, yeah, it's another one of his very dependable, um, funny and touching and finely observed films. Yeah, that sounds great. And I think, you know, um, that will probably get a cinema release. I would say so, definitely. eventually on DVD. At least a DVD one. And hopefully when it's on DVD, we'll watch it and talk about it further for the podcast. Um, so we'll be back with more movie talk next week. Uh, thank you, Anna, for joining me. Cheers, Tim. (laughs) And thank you for listening. (laughs) Bye.